Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast to fill your soul, challenge your mind, and make you brave. I'm your host, Joy Clarkson, and an evangelist for all things good, true, and beautiful. So make yourself a cup of tea, find somewhere comfortable, and let's dive in to this week's episode. Hello, friends, and welcome to the first week of my aggressively happy podcast series, where we'll be exploring how to patch together a life of joy and beauty in this weary old world. I'm very excited to share this interview with you all. I recorded it quite a few months ago, and it was a real lark that I got to have it happen because my guest, Christopher Tin, is someone who I'm a little bit of a fan of. I discovered his music during the depths of lockdown, and his album Calling All Dawns was something that kind of filled my soul with joy in the midst of a very dull season when I was just writing a PhD locked inside and couldn't do much other than fail at bread baking and brew yet another pot of coffee. Uh, To my delight, he said yes when I reached out to his agent to see if he would talk with me about music and uh, exploration in life and joy. And to my even greater delight, I discovered that he is most definitely an aggressively happy person. So I hope that you enjoy listening to this interview as much as I enjoyed conducting it. Today I'll be talking with Christopher Tin a two-time Grammy-winning composer of concert and media music. And by media music, I mean that he has composed the music to some of your favorite video games. Boasting a long list of awards, Christopher broke records with Baba Yetu, a setting of the Lord's Prayer in Swahili, originally written for the video game Civilizations IV, and the first piece of music written for a video game to ever win a Grammy. Christopher's music has been performed all around the world, from the Lincoln Center to the Kennedy Center to the Hollywood Bowl to the United Nations and the Carnegie Hall, where he had an entire concert devoted to his music. Uh, Christopher's music reflects that kind of universal tendency with a engagement with many different languages and texts and myths. And I think Christopher's Twitter tag sums it up pretty well, where he writes, I wrote that song you sang in that language you don't speak. So welcome to the show, Christopher. I'm delighted to have you. <laughs> that was a great intro, by the way. I know I wrote half of it, but I was so great to hear yeah. that. I'm glad you like my Twitter Twitter description. Oh yeah, no, I love it. And and I should say, um, to get started, it's probably helpful to know how I found your music, which has to do with re-inspiring my desire to learn more languages. So mm-hmm. the first way I discovered you was uh, my brother, so in the depths of the lockdown in the UK, so like in, I think it was May probably, so we'd been in lockdown for like two months, and I was uh, in the throes of finishing my PhD thesis, and I needed new music, and my brother, who is both composer and a video game enjoyer, was like, you should check out Christopher Ten. he has this great album called Calling All Dawns, and um, I, I did what I think many music lovers do, which is I became obsessed with it, and... <laughs> For people's kind of, uh, for the background, it's an album that's this, I mean, how would you, just, what is what is Calling All Dawns? I'll let you describe it and then I'll go on. Oh, it's a, uh, well, it's an album of um, 12 
songs in 12 different languages, all about life, death, and rebirth. Mm. And all of the source texts pull from everything from ancient myths to some original texts. Mm. Um, and it, it weaves it all together to kind of create, um, you know, a story and, mm. and a, like a, a monomyth in a way. I mean, mm -hmm. as long as, you know, we're talking, like, you know, about, about culture and humanities and yeah. literature and art and all these stuff, let's start trotting out the terms, right? Yeah. It's a monomyth about how essentially... Um, you know, we are all connected by a shared common human experience that sort of winds through each of our lives like a thread and taken together, you know, all of our experiences around the world form this elaborate tapestry of humanity mm. that is fun to revel and, and, and listen to. Mm. And this is my musical expression of all of that. Oh, what an amazing way to define it. And yes, and I think that gets to the heart of what I just became really um obsessed is maybe not the right word, but what I really enjoyed in your music was, to me, it's kind of two words come, well, three words come to mind. One is epic or mythic in the sense that there's this sense of grandeur and the, the pulsation of the human soul, the desire for meaning and death and rebirth and redemption, all those things. So that's word number one. Word number two is particular, right? So you have these 12 different languages, 12 very different texts that are kind of engaging with these ideas. Um, and the music, while it works together, it also pays attention to each of the different cultures and texts that it's coming from. It's not, it's a monomyth, but it's not one that wipes away differences. You know what I mean? So it's, it's particular, it pays attention to the particularities of each place, but then also universal, right? That in this sense of, in the midst of all the particularities, of the different texts, there is that, that monomyth, that sense of, uh, what, pulls us and ties us together, those kind of inherent desires and in human nature. Uh, and so I just, I'm all about that. I love, I, I study art and literature and religion. And I was like, oh, just got me very excited. It also had the odd effect of making me want to learn languages again. So I gotten, I got, you know, I've done German and French and Spanish and, and obviously English, but I was like, oh my gosh, language is also this portal to like, to those different ways of experiencing the world. So your, your language, your album inspired a, 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 a deep dive into Duolingo, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which I'm sure you probably didn't expect. But so tell me, how did you get uh, this kind of theme of the mythic, the desires that, that kind of are inherent to all humanity is, and that, that seems not to just be in this album, but in some ways throughout a lot of your music. So Tell me more about that. Where did that start? Why do you care about that? I guess I've always, I've always, I've, I've seen a lot of the world. Mm -hmm. I've traveled much of the world. Um, I was very lucky in that my parents loved travel and they trotted me along with them everywhere. And I met a lot of people, tasted a lot of different cuisine. You know, I've heard a lot of languages over the years. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it comes from, I guess, just a basic love of being out there and experiencing and seeing the world. Mm -hmm. But there's also this element of, a love of history um, in a way it dovetails neatly with the game franchise that I'm most known for which is the civilization franchise which is literally a game about founding a civilization and, and you know steering it through mm. through the centuries right um, and as a uh, college student myself and as a as a postgraduate student mm. I um, you know, I majored in English and hmm. music, um, and so I got a, a healthy dose of history through my English literature major, mm -hmm. but I was also an art history minor. Um, I hmm. fell one class short of completing the minor, but, oh. you know, I still claim credit to it anyway. Hmm. Um, but I was also very interested in 
the history of ideas, the history of thought, mm. aesthetic trends, um, mm. intellectual and philosophical trends, and how they, they feed into each other, and how every generation of artists and philosophers builds upon the work that their mm. predecessors laid down. And I get excited by things like that. I get mm. excited by the interconnectedness of both people and cultures and, and traditions across the world, mm. but also the interconnectedness of ideas through mm. the century. I just find that really interesting. Mm. And a lot of this is just kind of uh, an expression of my interest in things like art history. Mm. And that's kind of, you know, I write about what, what brings me joy in a way, mm. right? Mm. Uh, and, and it tends to be historical and cultural things. Mm. So that reminds me of, we should talk briefly about your album from last year, To Shiver the Sky, right? And that wasn't that, t tell us a bit about that album. And then that was chronological in a way, right? Yeah, it was mostly chronological. To Shiver the Sky is an 11 movement oratorio about the history of mankind's quest to conquer the heavens. Hmm. It's the history of aviation told through music. And it starts with uh, Leonardo da Vinci and mm -hmm. uh, a quote that's actually misattributed to him. But mm -hmm. the quote goes, for once you have flown, you will always look at the sky because that is your home and that is where you long to return. Mm -hmm. And it was that piece, that opening piece of this oratorio, a piece called Sogno di Volare, mm -hmm. which is also incidentally the theme song for Civilization VI. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> I decided that that's a great overture for which to uh, create a very large-scale symphonic work chronicling the history of mankind's endeavors to achieve flight not only in the skies but also to space. Mm. And so the Da Vinci movement kicks it off as an overture, but then after that we go through the century, starting with mystics like Hildegard von Bingen and going into, uh, it's a setting of Ovid's mm. uh, of the Icarus myth. Mm. Uh, the Daedalus and Icarus myth. Um, and then we go into um, the closing lines from Dante's Inferno. And then we mm. go to a, an excerpt from Copernicus's uh, treatise on, on the heliocentric uh, universe, actually. Um, mm. You thought it was the universe. Um, and it just kind of marches through the histories. And, you know, as we go through it, we have uh, source texts like Amelia Earhart's poetry that she wrote before she became, you know, a celebrity pilot. We go to Ferdinand von Zeppelin, actually Zeppelin's before Earhart. Um, but we actually end with a one-two punch in a way of mm. Yuri Gagarin's uh, words when he first returned from, mm. you know, being the man in outer space. And then right after that, we follow it up with John F. Kennedy's "We go, we choose to go to the moon" mm. speech setting of that. And that's the big grand finale movement where all the themes of the previous mm. tenets are sort of reprised together as if it's a summation, like this moment in history, 61 years ago when John F. Mm. Kennedy, 61, 60-ish, mm. 61 years ago, John F. Kennedy told the world, hey, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go to the moon and we don't quite know how we're going to do it, but we're going to achieve this in the name of, of, of human achievement. Mm. And this moment was only made possible by the countless engineers and artists mm. and visionaries and scientists who came before him. Mm. And that's why I wanted to take all of this musical material in all mm. of these preceding 10 movements and bring it all together in one climactic, epic finale. Mm. Because putting a man on the moon was it's humanity's achievement. Mm. It wasn't America's achievement. It wasn't John F. Kennedy's achievement or Neil Armstrong's. It was everyone's achievement collectively. Mm. Amazing. That's an amazing pitch for the album, too. Um, <laughs> everyone should go listen to it. Well, and I love that, too, because you 
you know, we talk about the monomyth, right? Which is kind of the sense of these circular things that we go over and over again. I don't know if you're thinking about Joseph Campbell there, the hero's journey that we have the death and rebirth, but this, this uh, oratorio is more of a sense of an arrival, like that it's, it's not as much as circular as it is an arc to a specific point. Now, just for my own curiosity, because it's fun to talk to people that I enjoy their art and just get to ask them things that I think about. Um, I just did a segment on one of my in one of my classes on um, on Hildegard of Bingen, who's just so weird and wonderful and strange. And um, so, tell us a little bit more about what was the process. Tell us what about the text that you chose for that, um, and then what the process is of kind of research composition. What does it look like to choose a text to bring it from choosing a text within this kind of arc researching it and then composing it what were kind of some of the choices you made hmm. okay well uh, the first choice was to actually start um you know chronologically with mm. hildegard actually it's not even chronological i mean ovid i guess chronologically would be the very first author on the album mm. but with hildegard von bingen um this was a movement uh that i wanted to um, composed because I wanted to establish this in the in the narrative of To Shiver mm-hmm. the Sky. Um, it's all about achieving um, flight, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and being up amongst the sky and the clouds mm-hmm. and the stars. Um, long before we were actually able to achieve flight, the mm-hmm. concept of being closer to God mm-hmm. meant that we did things like build giant cathedrals. Mm-hmm. You know, they went higher and higher so that we could reach upwards towards mm-hmm. God. And this was a, a, a sentiment that I wanted to um, allude to mm. early on into the, in the album. That mm. um, you know, it, it's 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 not just an engineering thing. It's mm. it's it's also like you know, we for religious reasons also mm-hmm. want to be you know elevated, right? Um, with Hildegard von Bingen in particular, I mean, she obviously has a lot of writings, but she also has a lot of compositions as well. Being a composer herself. Um, and I knew that I wanted to write something that almost sounded like something that she would have written, mm. um, which is why it's constructed as a plain chant. Mm. Um, but I wanted to dress it up with uh, 21st century orchestrations and, and, well, honestly, just a lot of, um, you know, I just wanted to, to update it, but also to, to inject it with a lot of my own personal style, really, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Because all of this needs to be pulled together under one sonic umbrella and that umbrella can only be my own personal aesthetic taste um yeah so it uh you know that movement um really kicks off the journey Hmm. and one of the things i also knew that i wanted to do with that movement is i knew that that main theme which is meant to sound like a plain chant Hmm. i knew i wanted to bring it back at the very end in the john f kennedy movement as well and that's why Mm. that we choose to go to the moon movement kicks off with the same melodic line as Mm. the hildegard von bingen movement because everything needs to be sort of bookended in my Mm. mind right or everything needs to be tied together in a unified sort of way Mm. and the way you do that in music is you transplant motifs from one piece to the other Mm. i love that and that's such a good way of seeing how the music embodies the very thing that you're kind of making right that it's 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 a progression and also bringing back of these themes and these motifs um, throughout it. And and I also love that that reminds us that, you know, in our modern world, we can think this is just an achievement of technology, but it kind of brings us back to that, that understanding that there are these kind of universal, not just in different cultures, but throughout time, there are these universal desires that we might articulate in different ways, but the desire to 
transcend ourselves, um, touch the sky, that that is something that we can relate to in Hildegard, but that's still there really when you look at JFK and when you look at the moon landings. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, they're uh, thousands of years apart, but I mean, the the, the basic human impulse mm. is the same. And, and I mean, I think that's what a lot of my music sort of zeroes in on, like commonalities. Um, mm. And you actually allude to another thing that I thought, um, you know, I, I try to inject into my works a lot. It's this idea of synecdoche. Or mm -hmm. synecdoche. Mm -hmm. uh, um, the part ref, uh, reflecting the whole, right? Mm. Um, a lot of times what I like to do is I like to zero in on a piece and have it be a bit of a microcosm of the rest of the album. And one example of this is my Japanese song, which is track two on Calling All Dawns, Madokara Miyoru. Mm -hmm. It in itself is a miniature cycle. Mm. embedded into this much larger cycle right mm. and the that piece itself is 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 built around uh this idea of seasons which is mm. a you know obviously a, a cyclical sort of thing um and in essence i mean that song is also about life death and rebirth mm. again which is what calling all dawns is all about so really like whenever i can i try to find these little moments where it's it's like okay if you want the full program uh you know, this is the summary right here mm -hmm. in this this particular work. I love that. And I love also that you mentioned the word microcosm because um, Hildegard specifically uh, talks about microcosm and macrocosm and in the way that she thinks about what it is to be a human and what the cosmos is meant to be to us. So she thinks of human beings as microcosms of the universe, which is this macrocosm, that if we want to understand the universe, we look to human beings and when we look to human beings we understand something about the universe um and which i just think is beautiful uh and there's a lot of writing about that even in um some of the more kind of cosmic church fathers that she's drawing on like gregory of nyssa and all these people who kind of think of that that connection between to understand the infinite we look to the finite yeah i love that last phrase that you ended with i mean that is fantastic you know i mean that is in essence um that is, in essence, the title of my second album, The Drop That Contained the Sea. I mean, you know, you talk about the microcosm and the macrocosm. Mm. Um, what you just said mirrors almost perfectly with this sort of this Sufi concept, which mm. is what The Drop That Contained the Sea is based on. And this concept is that within every single, okay, just like every single drop of water contains the essence of the entire ocean, mm. within each individual contains the essence of all humanity. And here we have another example where these these parallel thoughts are are independently arrived at by um, a German mystic in the ninth century, tenth mm -hmm. century, whatever mm -hmm. it was, um, and you know uh, Sufism. Um, you know, it, it just goes. It's just it just goes to show, you know, that we're essentially all in, coded with the same DNA, and we all have the same impulses and arrive at the same thoughts. You know, no matter where we are in the world. So. This is a this is a big overarching question, but you you write you use a lot of um, different languages, different religious texts. You you see the great diversity. What do you think? And we've already hit on this a little bit, but what do you think are some of the fundamental themes that are universal within those those great diverse texts? Does that make sense? You know, if we look at all these different themes, what do you think are things that kind of come out to you? What are the, okay, so, ah, oh boy, I mean, I have set so many different texts and music um, and what are the things that pull them together? 
I mean, in a certain sense, it's it's just whatever I latch onto. Mm. I mean, that becomes what I draw from. There are texts that deal with everything out there, but I tend to latch onto the ones that that um, you know have a, a resonance beyond just the immediate. Of course, I mean, Calling All Dawns is a very spiritual album. Mm. Um, and on a, on one level, it's really about um, you know religious tolerance in a way, right? Mm. That's that's kind of one of the subtexts of the album mm. but the others are are built around different concepts mm. i mean the drop that contained the sea it's built around this idea of the water cycle so every mm. text actually has to do with water in some way whether it's snow or clouds or mm. a mountain stream or a river mm. or the ocean or storms and all of the texts are actually ordered in the way that water flows through the water cycle so mm. it's almost like you're tracking a drop of water as it you know goes through the world mm -hmm. um so the print, the main principle in choosing those texts was really about finding in examples of water being referenced in literature hmm. in ways that were very specific to the cultures that they were being referenced, hmm. or uh, you know, the, the cultures that the text came from. So, for example, uh, for um, the Lango people in East Africa. Um, the most important instance of water was, in fact, the return of rainfall because it mm. watered their crops, it brought life and, 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 mm. uh, to their, their, their people and their villages. Mm -hmm. And that's the movement that I end on, right? Mm. But um, there's a movement in uh, Mongolian that is all about snow, for example. Mm. Or there's a movement um, in uh, ancient Greek. It's a <laughs> setting of the sirens myth from the Odyssey. Mm. Um, and, you know, when I was trying to come up with a, a movement that was about the ocean. I mean, mm. the Greek, one of the original seafaring people, they mm. popped into my mind. So, you know, I, 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 I have to say that um, I, I can't, it's not so neatly summed up by saying that there is a commonality amongst mm. all of the different texts. I mean, maybe within the albums themselves, mm -hmm. commonalities, but across everything that I've done, it's, there's, there's not enough Mm. Um, to pull it all under one umbrella, I think. It's it's what strikes you and what fits the project. It's very true. Each project is almost its own self-contained artistic work. I mean, it is mm. its own self-contained with um, its own set of rules mm. and its own set of guiding principles and architecture. Mm. And that's why, you know, after doing two albums that were essentially cycles, Calling mm -hmm. All Dawns and The Drop the sea. They were based around either the cycle of the sun traveling around mm -hmm. the world or the cycle of water traveling around the world. I decided to do something that was more linear to shiver the sky, which mm. is very much starting from point A and then ending at point B. Mm. But ultimately, all of them, I think within all of these albums, I like to try to find um, texts that connect across different movements within mm. the albums. Mm. Um, so, and uh, these texts should also reflect the realities of how ideas were sort of shared throughout mm. history. Mm. So, one example I love to give these days is um, we choose to go to the moon, my mm -hmm. mammoth setting of JFK's <laughs> mammoth speech. Um, what I find interesting about that particular moment in history is that it was a moment that was very much enabled by the rise of science fiction in popular culture. Hmm. This is a moment in time when, yes, there is a space race going on, and we definitely want to beat those commies out there, but <laughs> the ability to get the nation on board with sending a man to the moon by the end of the decade, when, by the way, we have no idea how to do that. <laughs> Nobody's done that before, and there's no 
the science doesn't exist yet. That is an amazing, amazingly brave and amazing sort of political maneuver mm. to pull, to really pull the country together and say, we're going to do this, right? Has there been that level of political unity in the United mm. States since then? I would say no. Has there been this moment where the entire world was fixated on one amazing moment in history in a positive way since then? I would say no. This was mm. kind of the apotheosis of mm. global cooperation in a way, right? Um, now, going back to JFK uh, and science fiction, hmm. he was able to get the nation behind this dream of putting man on the moon because we were already primed for this hmm. through TV shows, through radio shows, through science fiction literature, hmm. right? This was public already had thirst for. Hmm. And without that sort of public buy-in to hmm. this crazy idea, Kennedy would not have had the political capital to really pull this off. Hmm. Um, but that political capital, uh, that that interest in science fiction actually predates Kennedy by 100, 150 years or so. You have to go all the way back to Jules Verne, hmm. writing in the 19th century Paris, you know, um, coming up with these imaginative stories like hmm. um, uh, From the Earth to the Moon, you know. Um, that's what really sort of launched this genre of science fiction hmm. um, that captured the public imagination that ultimately gave Kennedy the political capital to hmm. achieve this bold vision. And so I tie those two movements together musically because that's that's what happened, right? Hmm. That's important to me. So that is, those are the artistic rules which, which I played by on that particular album. Hmm. They're different for each album, but, yeah. you know... Whenever I come up with something, I try to find ways to imbue the setting of the text with greater meaning mm. than just notes and words. Yeah, I love that. And I think it shows, too, how particular forms of art are well suited to particular things, right? Like literature allows us to imagine really specific things that we couldn't have thought were possible being possible, right? Because it uses language to conjure these things in our minds we couldn't have pictured on their own. And, and music has has that capacity to kind of help us experience the revisiting of themes and the interweaving, that, that kind of tapestry as you described it. And um, yeah, uh, did you have something you wanted to say about that? Well, yeah, it does. And it's on a subconscious level too. Yeah. I mean, that's the brilliant thing about it. Like a lot of people, you know, especially non, non-musicians, I mean, they, they sense the connectedness and the yes. unity of a project like Calling All Dawns or mm. To Shiver the Sky, but they may not exactly put into words the reason why that happens um yeah. and i think that's the brilliant thing about music in a way it it, it sort of shortcuts a yeah. lot of these sort of um, cerebral processes that we mm. all have and and just gets you to the good the good vibes you know without <laughs> really having to sort of work it out in your mind like why does this delight me oh it's not because just you know this re- movement re- no. this motif recurs and movements four and four and no. 11 or whatever it's it just it just does it and you f- get the joy out of it mm. um and uh i mean that's why that's that's why being a, a composer is such a fun job sometimes <laughs> honestly uh, yeah. you get to tinker with people's emotions and they don't even know it. <laughs> one of the chapters in my phd was on emotion and music and it was funny reading all of these kind of writers both psychological and religious because there's this like they can't even quite articulate that it just it just gets to the heart there's something immediate about music that's um more fundamental uh, i think than our language processes you know that that we can we can just absorb it and it makes me wonder if that's 
a part of why music is particularly good at capturing those kind of universal themes and desires. Uh, one of my favorite scholars writes that there is an intimate connection of music from its earliest times and in its wisest moments with religion. And part of what he means by that is that there's this music is used in almost all religions, right? Most, most religions have some form of music. And I think part of that is because, you know, you talk about the universal joy and exhilaration that came with the moon landing, that it was something we could all bond around. But music itself is kind of one of those universal things. It's one of those things that's shared by all cultures. And that because it goes beyond our kind of rational understanding of things, it can evoke those kind of fundamental universal desires. Do you think, do you think that's true? Do you think there's kind of a reason that music is good at conveying the, that, that sense of monomyth or desire or that kind of, I don't know if that question makes sense. Sure, it does. It absolutely does. I mean, music is one of these art forms where, I mean, and, and I love talking about different art forms and what they're particularly good at. And mm -hmm. I love that you alluded to that because it's very much on my mind these days. Yeah. Um, music is one of these art forms where um, music in, in essence, music has the advantage of being purely abstract if it wants to. Mm -hmm. Almost every other art form relies on something that's kind of grounded in a representation. Representational, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Music is fundamentally an abstract art form. Mm. Um, and in over the centuries, we've come up with ways to, you know, write music such that evokes basic things like mm. a, a sigh, you know, mm. like when notes descend, you kind of have this feeling of sighing. When the music gets louder and when it rises upwards, you have this sort of exhilaration, right? Mm. But in essence, notes themselves, I mean, it's its more akin to math than it is to, to mm. any other art form. It's its just pure, pure frequency. It's duration. It's its structure. It's its basic design principles sonically, right? Mm. And its it excels at that because notes on their own are purely non-representational. But once music starts being representational, it's when you start injecting text into it as well, mm. right? So that's when your music can do two things it can be built around something very representational but it can also have this exoskeleton of mm. emotion which is the notes and, and you know the structure mm. and the dynamics of phrasing and all of that um and that's why it's so well suited to devotional practice as mm -hmm. well because it's it, it can be hinged around um a message or mm -hmm. or or uh, you know uh, a lesson or mm -hmm. or, or anything an idea, yeah mm -hmm. yeah an idea and it can um, dress that in any way that it wants to. There doesn't necessarily need to be that connection between the notes mm. themselves and the words themselves. So it's a very pliable medium mm. in a way. Um, it's also, I mean, one of these art forms that's fleeting, right? Mm. Generally speaking, enjoyment of music is temporal. Mm -hmm. You don't ever get to sit down and kind of soak in the entire piece at the same time. You experience it, yeah. you experience it always in a sequential manner, front to back. Mm. Um, and you live that, through it. You live through it. Yeah. You experience music. You don't just take a snapshot of it and move on to the next mm -hmm. thing in the gallery or something like yeah. that. It's, it's something that you have to um, experience in a set finite amount of time. Mm. Um, and that, that, you know, adds to the processional value mm. of, or not processional value uh, the, um, the ceremonial value mm -hmm. of it in a way, right? Mm. Um, music is largely especially in um, uh, religious context or, mm -hmm. or live concert context, it is meant to be the sole focus of your attention as well, mm -hmm. too. So as a composer, if I'm writing for the concert stage, um, 
I know that I have a good 12 minutes where people are not allowed to get up from their seats, you know, and I can take them on a 12 minute journey if I need to. Uh, that said, we live in the Internet generation. And I know, for example, that if I take too long to get to my good idea, somebody's going to skip to the next track and I'm going to lose a listener. So hmm. as composers, we we juggle all of those different things. But it is kind of a privilege to be a composer because music is one of these really, really pliable things. You can mm -hmm. do many, many different things. Also, it's weird to think about music as math that makes you feel things, you know, on some level. That's kind of <laughs> kind of what it is, um, which it is, is, yeah, 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 which is um, which is just amazing. Who are some composers that you were first obsessed with or or what? Are, who are some of your first kind of musical obsessions? Um, or did you have any, okay. were you not, were you oh, a yeah, more normal I, oh, person? Sure. Oh <laughs> God, I had a ton. I mean, you know, they, they say the, uh, the age, you know, when you're 14 and start like, you know, the bands that you listen to when you're 14 are going to stay with you the rest of your life. Mm. Right. That's, mm. that's, that's a, a, an age when music imprints on you and it sort of defines your taste and your aesthetic mm. sensibilities. I think back then I was probably listening to a lot of Pink Floyd, to be honest, I yeah. was in the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and, and, you know, a lot of 70s classic rock. Mm. It's just what we did in the Bay Area, uh, yeah. in the San Francisco Bay Area. You mm. know, you listen to Zeppelin and the Dead. And, yeah. you know, we're just a bunch of hippies back then, right? <laughs> um, but uh, I will say, though, that uh, the way that manifests itself in my own mm. very sort of classical and classical adjacent recordings mm. is that I very much believe in the album and the concept mm. album. And that's why all of my albums are very concept driven and unified along, uh, you know, with narratives and, mm. and so forth. Um, I like albums that are more than just a compilation of different tracks mm. and different songs. I like things that are really just sort of pulled together, right? Yeah. But I also have to point to some other influences early on. I mean, I was always a big fan of American symphonic composers, mm. Aaron Copland, Leonard Bernstein, George Gershwin. Mm. Um, you know, the ones who were unafraid to incorporate folk vernacular into a symphonic context. And mm. once you sort of think about that, it makes perfect sense why mm -hmm. I write what I write, right? I love this melding or this incorporation of folk melody, of, of, of um, you know, non-standard languages mm -hmm. in the canon. I mean, I love this, this blending of, you know, I don't want to say the highbrow and the lowbrow, but perhaps mm -hmm. the sort of um, institutional and mm -hmm. or indigenous maybe mm. uh, this creates exciting sound worlds for me and exciting mm. ideas and it creates context with which I can use to tell stories because if I write an original lyric and set it to music that lyric doesn't necessarily have a historical context that mm. I can create dialectic around right mm. but if I write something and it's a setting of say you know something from the Torah Hmm. Um, I can compare and contrast that to, uh, a, a, you know, a Polish Catholic hymn, mm -hmm. you know, in the preceding event, or, you know, the poetry of um, Omar Khayyam in the, mm -hmm. the following movie. I can create dialogue between different pieces within the album, and that's why using historical texts as the foundation for your movements gives you that added richness. Sort of building block. Yeah, yeah, there's an added richness. Yeah, and an added element that you can play with. And that's what I like to do. Yeah, that sense of tapestry, which I think is very key. That seems like a key concept for you, both in your albums and themselves, that you want that it feels like you're experiencing something that's interwoven, but then also that return to themes that are kind of pieces that are woven, you know, themes or 
ideas or kind of developments of things throughout history. Um, and that kind of, yeah, kind of being woven together. Totally. I'm going to go a little further here. Going back to synecdoche. Yeah. Um, even within the way that I write my orchestral parts and my choral parts mm. relates to this idea of a tapestry. Mm. I very much think of an orchestra as a series of individuals who play mm. one note at a time. Mm. And yes, there are instruments that will play chords multiple notes at a yeah. time. But I tend to think of everyone as a thread. Mm. And when I compose my pieces, these threads move in parallel. They move in counterpoint. They intertwine. Mm. They spread out, they come together, they split, they join, they mm. do all these different things. A piece of music to me is a bunch of moving horizontal threads that just kind of fly around in the air and, mm. and tie themselves together. Mm. And I mean, that's how I think of music. Yeah. I don't think of it vertically. I don't think, okay, this is my chord here and this is my chord yeah. here. And then we want it's, it's just this horizontal motion of individual voices or instruments kind of moving through time. Mm. And being aware of each other and connecting with each other and, and, and all moving towards, uh, you know, the, the, the big finale, right? Mm. But my, my music is very, written very linearly, mm. very much um, horizontally. The way you were describing how you, how you create sounds like something we could say about reality in the sense that it's these things moving together, which are, are intertwined. And um, Gregory of Nyssa writes that the best way to describe the cosmos, the world, is as music, because it's the sense of everything resonating and intertwining together. Uh, so that's just my little nerdy addition to that. But that sense that synecdoche, both in music itself, but then that that's kind of this music itself can be a microcosm of the macrocosm, you know, the sense of the intertwining while moving through time. Uh, isn't that what we are all doing? <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah. It very much is. Yeah. 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 Oh, this is so fun. I should let you go soon. It's a Monday. You've got things to do. But be <laughs> before I go, um, are there any new projects or things you should tell us about that you're working on or that you can tell us about that we should go check out? Well, the current album I'm working on is, is called The Lost Birds. It's actually, um, you know, a lot of my music actually has a bit of a I like to say a concerned citizen, a concerned global citizen aspect of it. We need those. About, you, know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like there's, there's always a little bit of a subtext, like, oh, mm -hmm. yes, this is an album about water. But really, it's kind of an album about, like, you know, being, being careful stewards of our water supply mm -hmm. in the world, right? Mm -hmm. And the destructive force of water in nature and, and, and just, mm -hmm. you know, managing it. Um, of course, nobody's going to buy an album about water management, but you know you have to hide your messages a little bit within the uh, the you know the the story that you want to tell, and so you mm. you know you you dress up your your agenda you know mm. with like uh, you know historical references and and all of this sort of stuff. But in all seriousness, though, um, the Lost Birds—it's my fourth major mm. album. It's being uh, written specifically for the choral group, uh, or sorry, the vocal ensemble, Boches Eight. They're oh. a Yes, How yes, fun. they're an amazing British vocal ensemble. Yeah. Uh, outstanding, right? Oh, yeah. Um, and it's basically a requiem for mm. extinct birds, mm. birds that we've driven to extinction through man-made means. Mm. Um, it takes as probably the most uh, like uh, tragic mm. case study, the story of the passenger pigeon, which was... Mm the most numerous bird in North America that we mm. hunted to extinction in the late 19, uh, late 1800s um, 
through 18th century technology, shotguns, you know, that's we, we drove a species to extinction with shotguns. Now imagine what we can do now, right? Now the reason I'm fixated on birds and their extinction is because just like the, the metaphor of the canary in the cold mine, mm. the extinction of birds is a preface to our own extinction in a mm. way. And mm. that's the concerned citizen portion of Christopher Tin coming out. Um, this is going to be a setting of various poems mm. by poets like uh, Christina Rossetti, Sarah mm -hmm. Teasdale, um, Edna St. Vincent Millay, mm -hmm. uh, you know, lyrical poets of the mm -hmm. uh, yeah, uh, post-industrial revolution, late 19th century. Mm. Uh, and I fixated on these poets because that is kind of the era in which we first started really affecting mm. the environment around us um, through industrialization. Mm. And it's going to be a more serious affair mm. than my previous albums. I would say a lot of my albums are sort of marked with an optimism or a joy. Mm. Mm. This one going to be a little more um, uh, elegiac mm -hmm. in a way mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's all in English oh I know right what the heck like yeah. <laughs> what does that have happened with one of my albums um, but it's it's been a real joy coming up with the the rules of this fourth mm. album the logic and the architecture of this fourth album, right? Everything has its own logic and architecture. And when you start on a new thing, you know, you're not just recreating mm. your previous project. You're kind of examining what this project is and, and what it wants to be. And you find the structural and musical devices that support that. Mm. And I'm, I'm right in the thick of composing right now. Mm. Um, we're aiming for a release next fall. Um, I'll be flying out to London in February to record with Voces 8 and the oh. Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. And I'm excited for it. Oh, wow. That is that is so exciting. It reminds me of um, of the project. Have you heard of the project Lost Words? It's a book that was written by uh, Robert McFarlane, and it's images and poetry around words that have been taken out of the, the children don't know anymore about the environment. And part of his goal was to was to kind of give children language to describe the countryside in England, which is incredibly diminished right now. There's There's been a lot of kind of dewilding, or if you want to call it that. So part of it was to be able to name things in nature um, for the purpose of being able to honor them and protect them. And there's that sense that if you mm. can't name something, if you can't mourn a bird when it's lost, if you then then what will, why would you have a an impulse or an act an effective attachment to it to save it. And, um, and to me, that was a really beautiful kind of picture of the use of art because it was both these images and poetry uh, to help kind of, yeah, it was a concerned citizen thing, but it's also just absolutely beautiful. So it reminds me of that since so the lost birds. You know, that's a, that's a gorgeous idea. And this goes back to one of the earliest things that we had sort of touched on, mm. which is how, you know, music is an art form just as, the visual mm -hmm. arts, just as literature, theater, whatever. Mm -hmm. They're all different art forms. They're all uniquely suited towards different means. Mm -hmm. And especially when you're talking about things like addressing issues like climate mm -hmm. change or mm -hmm. you know, loss of biodiversity, you know, a documentary film can do very different things than mm -hmm. a, a, a mass, you know, mm -hmm. or an oratorio mm -hmm. or oral work, right? Mm -hmm. They're all uniquely suited to different things. 
And to try to take a musical form like a mass mm -hmm. and turn it into a vehicle for deep education on, mm -hmm. you know, the science of the loss of species or extinction mm -hmm. just would not work, mm -mm. right? Instead, music is better suited towards, for example, eliciting sympathy mm -hmm. or creating this sense of loss or, or, yeah. or memorial for these birds that have been lost. And in a way, that's how I see the role of a musician as well. Mm. We're in, our job is not to get into the nuts and bolts and educate on a truly deep level. We can leave that to the documentary filmmakers yeah. or the writers. Um, our job, in a way, is to go straight for the heart. Yeah. It is to go straight for the emotion because that mm. is what music does best. Yeah. I'm going to leave you know, the, 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 the deep education to David Attenborough and the BBC team and whoever else, you know, wants to really, really do great work mm. in, in bringing, you know, the world, uh, all the, mm. you know, all different species of nature in, in front of the average viewer and just educating them on, you know, why mm. their losses is, is a huge tragedy. I'm going to try to write instead the soundtrack that evokes that sense that this loss is something that we want to avoid and, yeah. and, and sure it doesn't happen. Well, and I think it gets down to that sense of particularity, too, that I think it's one thing to know in general that there are many species being lost. It's another thing to feel it in your bones, this particular bird, you know what I mean? And, and music helps you get inside of the reality of those emotions rather than kind of having a distance from it. And it's interesting. I will wrap up eventually. But it, it reminds me also, you said you're using a lot of those kind of 19th century artists or poets uh, for that after the Industrial Revolution. And that's kind of like late Romanticism era-ish. And so much of Romanticism was driven by that sense of loss and of alienation from nature that was coming with the Industrial Revolution. And with this impulse to try to get people to connect back with nature uh, through poetry, that, that, that was the way that was going to happen. And it's funny because people at the time thought it was very like idealistic and, you know, but now we're realizing, no, that was really a clarion call, something that we needed to get back in connection with. So I think it's very fitting that you're taking that impulse and putting it into music. Well, and that's very much why I'm setting this, giving this a bit of a 19th century sensibility. I mean, you know, we haven't even gone into things like transcendentalism and, I know. and you know, all these other things, right? You know, or the manifestations of this concern of nature mm. and, and losing nature in, in things like urban planning, right? Mm -hmm. You know, Frederick Law Olmsted in Central Park in New mm -hmm. York, right? Um, I mean, you know, there, there's so much about that era that you're absolutely right, is a bit of a um, reaction against mm -hmm. rapid industrialization. Um, and, you know, you're right, the arts were very much about, you know, being a, a pushback against mm -hmm. the, the pace of industrialization. And in a certain sense, we are as well in the information age that we're in right now, the... I don't know what they call this, the fourth industrial revolution or what, well, I don't know what they're calling this, but mm. we're in a bit of an industrial revolution ourselves at the moment. The parameters mm. are different and it's much more, you know, meta and digital. Mm. Um, but we're still in this moment where there is an active pushback against the pace of technology. And mm. we often look to nature and, and try to find our quiet moments out in nature. And that sensibility hasn't hasn't shifted in the last mm you know, a couple hundred years. Like we're still doing yeah. this thing where it's like, we just want to get out there, especially during the pandemic, especially oh, yeah. when we've all been locked down for so long. <laughs> there is a pushback against Zoom calls mm -hmm. and, and, you know, everything else that we do, right? The, mm. the Facebook and, and, and you know, yeah. we're, we're, I think there's always going to be this, this, this push and pull throughout yeah. the, the history. Well, of course, I, 
you know, if you think about it in the long, you know, tapestry of history, really the last 200 years are kind of one epoch. Like we're still in, it's not like, oh yes, there are the romantics who are experiencing this pushback from technology. We're still, when you look at history from a long lens point, we are, we're in that pocket of history where we're still experiencing that kind of renegotiation of what it is to be human and the loss that comes with industrialism and all that. We're kind of, we're still wrestling with that. It's not something that we've moved on from. You know, and it's something I think yeah. will only become more pressing. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, right? I mean, industrialization hasn't actually the pace of that hasn't ever taken you know a pause ever, no. and you know we're just playing, we're just we're still in this reactionary phase to to industrialization. Oh well, thank you so much for coming on, Christopher. This has been so fun. It has. I gotta say, this has been a real blast for me because it's like I said at the top of this call. I haven't had conversations like this in a long time with an academic. I mean, and it, it's, I love it. I just love oh. it. I oh. finally get to put all my years of, you know, <laughs> upper education, higher education to some good use here. Oh, I know. And I feel like, I feel like in a pub, we could probably go even deeper. Just oh my surface. God. Right. <laughs> well, we're going to have to do it. We'll do it. Yeah. One of these yeah. days well, at Oxford, me... London. You yeah. Know. Let me know if you're yeah, ever here. Scotland, yeah. I will for sure. Great. hope you enjoyed this week's aggressively happy episodes don't forget to tune in next week and to pre-order your copy of aggressively happy a realist guide to believing in the goodness of life which you can find wherever books are sold have a lovely week and remember to rejoice though you have considered all the facts